Welcome to episode 17 of Bearskins, Bayonets and Bravery, Notes from the Guards Museum. My name is Andrew Wallace and I am the director of the museum. Who would have believed that 17 weeks later we would still be recording these podcasts to try and get us through the boredom and frustration of lockdown? But here we are and on we go. The museum sadly remains shut for the simple reason that there is no one to open for as London still remains deader than Monty Python's famous parrot, and until such time as we have people walking past our front door, we are obliged to conserve our very limited funds and remain shut. Hope springs eternal, and we are very much looking forward to the possibility of reopening our doors to the public on the 1st of September. Now, in the last two episodes, we've followed the five regiments' progress in the Second World War from being driven out of Europe by overwhelming German forces, the regrouping, General Alexander's fight through North Africa, and the eventual fall of Tunis, and then the landings at Salerno, and the long, gruelling fight through the entire length of Italy. This week, we're going to go back slightly in time and look at the fortunes of the Guards Armoured Division the inspired idea to put very large guardsmen into very small tanks and to create a fighting force which was to become famous for its speed, daring and bravery in a series of battle leading to victory in Europe. In May 1941, a historic decision was taken, equal in significance to the formation of the Guards Division in the Great War. It was decided to form a Guards Armoured Division. This meant putting the foot guards some of the finest and certainly the largest infantry in the world, into tanks, with a role for which many thought they were neither mentally nor physically suited. Not surprisingly, the proposal aroused qualms and controversy in many quarters. The Household Brigade themselves welcomed the idea, believing that armour rather than infantry was the predominant arm of the future, and that they should therefore meet the new challenge. Moreover, There was an urgent need at that time for more armoured divisions in home forces to meet the still-present threat of invasion, and the guards were for several reasons particularly well-placed to form the new one. They'd had their own training organisation and were confident that the guardsmen had the necessary qualities to learn their new role quickly. The various regiments were used to working in close cooperation, and it was also an advantage that the guards' brigades then in existence were all independent brigades and so could be reorganised without disrupting existing divisions. So, on the 19th of June 1941, Divisional Headquarters was set up under Major General Sir Oliver Lease, Coldstream Guards, and the division assembled on Salisbury Plain in September. It consisted of the Household Cavalry Regiment, their reconnaissance regiment, the 5th Guards Armoured Brigade and the 6th Guards Armoured Brigade. For his divisional sign, General Lease adopted a slightly modified version of the ever-open eye, the Eye of Horus, used by the Guards Division in the First World War. The new version was designed by the artist Rex Whistler, then serving in the Welsh Guards, who painted a selection on the side of vehicles from which the General and his staff made their final choice. The division was given only six months in which to become operational, but it was achieved. General Lease, however, left in September 1942 
to take over a corps in North Africa. And the new commander was Major General Alan Adair, Grenadier Guards. There were inevitably several changes of organisation as well. But by the end of 1943, the organisation was settled and the division had been welded into a closely integrated family. The supporting units from other arms and corps were very much part of the family, and this was to contribute considerably to the spirit and the success of the division. Now everyone wanted, above all, to have the chance to prove themselves, and it came in July 1944, when the division landed in Normandy and concentrated around Bayeux, 18 miles west of Caen. The division's first battle on the 18th to the 22nd of July 1944 was in many ways an unsatisfactory opening. Operation Goodwood was an attack east of Caen by three armoured divisions, the 7th, 11th and the Guards, under the 8th Corps commanded by Lieutenant General Sir Richard O'Connor. The aim was to draw the German armour off the Americans onto the British sector and so enable the Americans to break out on their front further west. The attack went in at dawn on the 18th of July, behind a massive pulverising raid by over 2,000 planes. But although the Germans in the front line were demoralised, they had established a powerful screen of tanks and anti-tank guns behind the bombed area, and all three British Army divisions were soon held up. One tank lost was that of Lieutenant J.R. Gorman of the 2nd Battalion Irish Guards who suddenly found himself facing four heavy German tanks at a range of 200 yards. He directed his gunner onto the nearest, which happened to be a Royal Tiger, the heaviest of the German tanks, and the first of the species seen on the Western Front. The following conversation took place. Gunner. Fire! Guns jammed, sir. Oh, Christmas, why? No answer. Driver. Ram! Lance Corporal Barron let in the clutch and the Sherman careered forward straight at the Tiger, which it hit with a resounding crash, a split second before the Germans could open fire. Both tanks were immobilised. Both crews hurriedly bailed out and, being unarmed, both ran in opposite directions. Undeterred, Lieutenant Gorman then found another tank with a heavier gun, manned it and opened fire on the four enemy tanks, damaging two. He was awarded a military cross, the first one by the Guards Armoured Division, while Lance Corporal Barons received the military medal. The battle may have seemed no great triumph to those taking part, but it had achieved its strategic aim, in that there were now seven German panzer divisions plus four heavy tank battalions facing the British, but only two panzer divisions opposite the Americans. It had also inflicted heavy losses on the Germans including 100 tanks and 2,500 prisoners, which they could ill afford at this stage in the war. The next stage of the campaign was a remarkable change, being a two-and-a-half-week period of fierce close-quarter fighting in the Bocage of Normandy. In contrast to the open plains around Caen, this was much more like the English West Country, with narrow lanes, thick hedges between small grass fields, and above them high banks capped with trees and bushes. The numerous small villages and farmhouses all made good strong points. In general, the country was in every way ideal for defence and highly unsuitable for an armoured advance. Again, the task was to pin down the German armoured forces 
with a view to enabling the Americans to make a breakthrough to the West. The first into action were the 40-ton Churchill tanks of the Six Guards Tank Brigade. The brigade had been formed in 1941 as part of the Guards Armoured Division, but it had been detached in October 1942 to become a heavy tank brigade for close support of the infantry. In 1943 and in March 1944, the brigade had been close to being disbanded in order to provide reinforcements of other units in North Africa. Each time it was reprieved, thanks to the ultimate intervention of the Prime Minister. Now, on the 30th of July 1944, came their first chance to prove themselves. They were to support the 227th Highland Brigade of the 15th Scottish Division in an attack aimed at capturing some vital high ground. Hill 309, which was part of the Mont Picon feature. It was a key position for the Germans, for it formed the hinge of their front in Normandy, and on its retention depended their orderly withdrawal eastwards. The tanks of 4th Battalion Coldstream and 3rd Battalion Scots Guards moved off at 0800 hours with two leading battalions of infantry, but very soon heavy mortar and artillery fire prevented the infantry from keeping up with them. Normal procedures would now be for the tanks to wait for the infantry to close up on them. But on this occasion, the Churchills, including some equipped with flamethrowers, pushed on regardless, and by that afternoon, both tank battalions had reached their objectives. They were now far ahead of the infantry support, which meant that in such close country, they were particularly vulnerable to enemy tanks, anti-tank guns and bazookas. Indeed, S-Squadron of the Scots Guards, commanded by Major William Whitelaw, at one stage had eight of its tanks knocked out by German Jag Panthers in a few minutes. Wireless messages describing the enemy armour made it sound like an escape menagerie with the references to tigers and panthers to the north, south, east and west. We gave up counting the brutes, commented one officer. But the surviving tanks stayed alone on the vital high ground all night till the infantry came up early the next day. They then remained to support them all that day helping to beat off several counterattacks until, late in the afternoon, the enemy pulled out. It had been a most satisfying success. The Guardsmen had proved themselves in their new role, and the Churchill tanks also justified every confidence placed in them. The Corps commander wrote, No tank unit has ever been handled with greater dash and determination, and so everyone was satisfied. The commander of the Second Army, Lieutenant General Miles Dempsey, wrote later, the entry of the Six Guards Tank Brigade into the Battle of Normandy was dramatic. It was entrusted with an operation of the highest importance at a decisive moment. Few of its men had been in action before, and a lot depended on their success. They achieved it completely. Never before has the value of training been so clearly exemplified. The victory of Comont was their first and finest battle, by which they will be forever remembered. The next day, 31st July, it was the turn of the 2nd Household Cavalry Regiment, who were acting as the reconnaissance regiment to 8th Corps. They achieved a fine coup by discovering an undefended and unmined track, which proved to be the boundary between two German divisions, each of which thought the other was responsible for it. Boldly, they moved up it and captured a bridge over the river Soulèvre, six miles behind the enemy lines. So far, so good but it then had to be held by only five men for two hours before other troops could take over. It was a vitally important capture, which may well have influenced the course of the whole Bocage battle. 
the Guards' armoured division had meanwhile moved 45 miles from Caen and now started on two weeks of fierce fighting in the Bocage, in which at one moment both the Household Cavalry and the Divisional Engineers were used in an infantry role. 32nd Guards' Brigade had some particularly grim fighting around Le Busque and Le Perrier Ridge, and the 5th Battalion Coldstream Guards, for example, lost three commanding officers wounded in two weeks. The Irish Guards particularly mourned the death of Lieutenant Hugh Dormer. He had already won a DSO for his exploits when he twice dropped by parachute into occupied France, blew up important enemy installations and each time escaped back to England. An intensely religious individual, he wrote in his diary just before D-Day, God grant me the courage not to let the guardsmen down, knowing as I do how much they count on me. He was buried by the roadside, and the guardsmen came with bunches of flowers for his grave. On the 27th of August, the Guards Armoured Division transferred from 8th to 30 Corps, commanded by Lieutenant General Brian Horrocks, in preparation for what was to be the most spectacular and exciting operation of its history, the liberation of Brussels. A most welcome development was that the 2nd Household Cavalry Regiment now returned to the division in their original role as the Reconnaissance Regiment. This meant that 2nd Battalion Welsh Guards could revert to being an armoured battalion and it thus became possible to form true regimental groups, each consisting of an infantry and an armoured battalion from the same regiment. This organisation lasted for the rest of the campaign and proved a resounding success. It provided for the closest possible confidence and cooperation between infantry and armour within groups, and at the same time provoked a salutary element of regimental rivalry between the groups. On the 31st of August, the Household Cavalry again set the pace by setting off at 0100 hours and seizing intact three bridges across the Somme, which had the code names Faith, Hope and Charity. They then held them all night with the help of the local French resistance and the corps commander wrote of it as being a most memorable night's work. Now the gallop began, and the next day the division crossed the Somme and dashed 30 miles to liberate Arras. General Adair diplomatically directed the Welsh Guards group there, and there they received a great welcome from the inhabitants, who had not forgotten their defenders of June 1940. Dawe was reached the next day, and there General Adair was visited about noon by the army commander and the corps commander and told of their grand plan, nothing less than the liberation of Antwerp by the 11th Armoured Division and the liberation of Brussels by the Guards Armoured Division, both as soon as possible. Speed was to be of the essence, and airborne landings were planned to seize various key points on the axis of advance. I had a feeling of exhilaration, recalls General Adair, that at last the division was to be given a real opportunity to show its paces. My only fear was that the start might be delayed by the airborne drop. At dusk on the 2nd of September, a chilly, wet evening, General Adair gave out his orders in a farmhouse near Dowey. My intention is to advance and liberate Brussels, he declared, adding with a grin, and that is a grand intention. It was indeed. The plan that followed is worthy of record. The advance was to be on two centre lines. The left, 5th Guards Armour Brigade, was a twisty secondary road and was for that reason expected to be less strongly defended. The right, 32nd Guards Brigade, 
was the better road, but likely therefore to be better defended. Either way, the distance was about 75 miles and involved crossing the width of six maps. Behind the division came two infantry brigades, specially allotted for the occasion. They were the first Belgian brigade, rushed up from Le Havre to join the liberation of their capital, and the 231st Infantry Brigade Group, commanded by Brigadier Sir Alexander Stanier, Welsh Guards, brought in to provide some infantry support. H hour depended on the airborne operation, and it was with the greatest relief, therefore, that everyone heard at midnight that the drops were cancelled, which meant the division could be away at dawn. So at 0700 hours, 3rd of September, on a lovely sunny morning, the household cavalry crossed the Belgian frontier, followed an hour later by the Grenadier group, leading on the left centre line and the Welsh group on the right. Pockets of stubborn resistance were met from the start, but were usually brushed aside or bypassed. pont a and Lurtze were both more strongly defended, and this caused delays to both columns. Prisoners were handed over to the care of the local Maquis, the local resistance force, who also gave invaluable help clearing snipers, providing information, guarding bridges and repairing roads. Inevitably, the advance developed into a race between the two leading groups, and the general was persuaded to pick a winning post, a road junction just within the outskirts of Brussels. At 15.30 hours, the Welsh guards were held up at Enghein, and the Grenadiers looked like being the likely winners, but then the Welsh group requested and received permission to go at maximum speed. As they had Cromwell tanks capable of 50 miles an hour, while the Grenadier group had Shermans which could only manage 25, this gave them a sporting chance again, and the pace grew faster and faster. At each village, wildly excited crowds cheered deliriously, waved and threw fruit and drink to the tank crews and the infantry, it hardly seemed real after the grim fighting of the Bocage. The Grenadiers were within ten miles of Brussels, when they were then held up again, whereupon the Welsh guards put their foot down even further. Then they too were delayed at Harl, but pushed boldly on. Just after twenty hundred hours, it was the Welsh guards who triumphantly passed the winning post. The very first vehicle into Brussels was in fact an armoured car of A Squadron, 2nd Household Cavalry Regiment but they were ordered to halt in the suburbs. The crew were Lance Corporal of Horse I.W. Dewar and Trooper D. Ailes. Dewar described the scene. The Belgians made one mighty rush at us, and we were completely swamped. I tried to get a message over, but the aerials were being whipped off as souvenirs. So had our bedding, all our rations, the cooker, and everything else. The first vehicle to reach the centre of the town was a tank belonging to 2nd Battalion Welsh Guards. It was commanded by Lieutenant J.A.W. Dent and was driven by Guardsman E.J. James. The crew were Lance Corporal E.K. Rees and two brothers, Guardsman Robert and Ralph Beresford. It was an unbelievable climax to an unbelievable day, which was also approximately the fifth anniversary of the declaration of war. The wild exhilaration of the Belgians was deeply moving. The crowds were five, ten, twenty deep, wrote one officer. They cheered and waved and sang endlessly. It seemed that there had never been so much happiness. Nothing like this has ever happened before, nor ever could happen again. And over all the revels and the singing, the dome of the Palais de Justice, a huge and solitary fire burnt, lighting up the night sky.
one officer reported that he had acquired a plantation of flowers, ten boxes of cigars, countless plums, two bottles of champagne, and the name and address of nearly every girl in Brussels chalked on his vehicle. Allied prisoners emerged from hiding. German snipers were hunted down, and for the rest of the night utter joy and utter confusion reigned in Brussels as four years of fear and bitterness were ended. Units found it difficult to reach their allotted areas, but finally the four groups were located around Brussels, with advanced divisional headquarters encamped in the gardens of the Royal Palace of Laeken. Queen Elizabeth of the Belgians had been among the first to greet them, and she now brought the men tea and food. One of the division command vehicles caught fire, and all the maps for the next day's advance were burnt, which did not help. The Belgian crowds, however, were thrilled by the great bonfire lit to celebrate the liberation. It was not, in fact, the record-breaking armoured advance that the press made it to be, but it was a tremendous satisfaction to the whole division to have been able to prove themselves so dramatically after three years of training, followed by the frustrations of Normandy. The euphoria was short-lived. While Brussels had been ceremonially handed back the next day to the Burgomaster and the Belgian Brigade, the guardsmen became involved in costly fighting across the canals and dikes of Holland and through the villages such as Beringen and Hechtel, where the Germans now fought stubbornly. A highlight was the discovery by a troop of the household cavalry of a vital bridge across the Esco Canal and its capture by a company of the Irish guards under Major D.A. Peel, a success which was reckoned to have made it possible to bring forward the advance by several days. The bridge promptly became known, even at army level, as Joe's Bridge, in honour of not only Colonel Joe van der Leer commanding the Irish group, but also of Captain Joe Hutton of a 615 field squadron, who removed the demolition charges. The latter had, in fact, mislaid his troop of sappers, but he detailed the nearest four guardsmen to help him. They then actually joined him in cutting the wires to the explosives under the bridge. The Corps Commander, Lieutenant General Horrocks, came up to congratulate the troops involved personally, and at that time he asked the Household Cavalry whether they could find out the depth of the German defences beyond the canal. No easy task. When they were in direct contact with the enemy and could not get round any flank. Lieutenant Buchanan Jardine, to whom the task was allotted, decided the only hope was to lay in boldness. With two scout cars, he crossed the bridge under fire in broad daylight on the 11th of September and drove eight miles into enemy territory as far as Valkensvard, where he found the road blocked by a tank. Fortunately, he was able to hide his vehicle unseen and dismount. After questioning some Dutch civilians, he then returned by the same route, this time at 60 miles an hour. Everything on the outside of the scout cars was punctured by bullets, but incredibly, there were no casualties. For what was described as the most daring reconnaissance that was carried out in the last war, he was awarded the military cross, while the Royal Netherlands government gave him the Order of the Bronze Lion for being the first Allied soldier to set foot in Holland. The Arnhem operation, which now follows, was a grim reminder that the war was not yet over, and that it did not consist of triumphs only. The Guards' Armour Division were given the task in Operation Market Garden of leading the advance along the airborne carpet, laid as part of Field Marshal Montgomery's bold plan to drive deep into the heart of Germany. The operation depended on the swift capture of three major river obstacles, as well as many minor bridges. 
Three airborne divisions were to be dropped to do this, and then to hold open a narrow corridor from the Dutch border to Arnhem. It was a gamble, of course, but it was thought to have a good chance of success in the light of the disorganised state of the enemy at that time. The plan had three major advantages, in that it outflanked the Siegfried line, it might have achieved complete surprise, and the battlefield was within flying range of the UK. The stakes were high, for success could possibly mean that the war might be ended by Christmas. The hazards, including the many obstacles to be crossed without delay, the weather threat to the airborne operations, the administrative problem, and finally, of course, the enemy reaction. In the event, each of these four factors went wrong to some degree, and the accumulative effect prevented final success being achieved. One officer described it as being like threading seven needles with one piece of cotton, and we only have to miss one to be in trouble. To mention just one of the administrative problems involved, Plans had to be made for the situation where the enemy might demolish one or more of the vital bridges along the axis. This possibility alone meant including in the column no less than 9,000 sappers with 5,000 vehicles of bridging equipment. The distance to Arnhem was 64 miles, and although the ground forces involved consisted of the equivalent of four divisions, with over 20,000 vehicles, the advance throughout had to be virtually on one tank front down one road. This single access was also exceptionally vulnerable, for to the west there were over a quarter of a million Germans cut off in northern Holland, and their only escape route back to Germany lay across that road. 43rd and 50th Infantry Divisions therefore followed up behind the Guards' Armoured Division in order to hold the centre line and to provide badly needed infantry support. At noon on Sunday 17th September, the massive airborne assault went in, and at 14.35 hours, the tank of Lieutenant Keith Hethcote, 2nd Battalion Irish Guards, crossed Joe's Bridge and led off down the main road to Germany. Steadily, the tanks rumbled forward behind the barrage, and within minutes were across the Dutch border. Advance going well, reported the squadron commander. Then the German anti-tank guns opened up. Five minutes later, the mix had lost nine tanks and the road was blocked by burning vehicles of all types. A fierce exchange of fire developed, strengthened by the brilliant close support of rocket-firing typhoons. One by one, the enemy guns were silenced. More tanks pushed on down the road. Before long, the enemy defences were broken and the advance continued. Eindhoven was reached on the 18th and the 250-yard-long bridge at Grave was crossed on the morning of the 19th. The leading troops were much helped by putting telephone calls through to towns ahead of them and obtaining instant information from Dutch civilians about the defences and movements of the Germans. By noon that day, the Grenadiers, now in the lead, had the pleasure of linking up just south of Nijmegen with General Boy Browning, also a Grenadier, who was in overall control of the airborne operations as Commander 1st Airborne Corps. But they were behind schedule because of unexpected enemy resistance, and now they learned that the vital Nijmegen Bridge had not been captured as planned. This massive bridge, nearly half a mile long and a hundred feet high, was intact, but still held by the Germans. A railway bridge just under a mile to the west was also in enemy hands, and equally inaccessible.
an attack by a small joint Anglo-American force was hurriedly mounted against both bridges at 1600 hours in the hope of rushing them, but it was beaten back. It was vital to get across the river without delay if Arnhem was to be reached on time. No further British troops could be expected in Nijmegen for at least 24 hours and the 32nd Guards Brigade was committed to the defence of the right flank at Grosbeck. All depended on the American paratroopers and the guardsmen who were already in Nijmegen. On the 20th of September, the Grenadier Group, supported by the 2nd Battalion of 505th US Airborne Regiment, fought their way street by street through the town, finally clearing the Valkov, a strong point covering the road bridge, by mid-afternoon. Meanwhile, it had been decided that the 3rd Battalion of the 504th US Airborne Regiment commanded by 27-year-old Major Julian Cook, should attempt an assault crossing the 400-yard-wide river. They had never carried out a river crossing before, let alone in the flimsy canvas and plywood assault boats which were the only craft available. The opposite bank of the river was strongly held, and the only support available was from tanks. At 1500 hours, the first wave of 260 men launched the 28 assault boats, about a mile west of the railway bridge. The only form of propulsion was by means of wooden paddles, helped out with rifle butts. But progress was agonisingly slow against the three-knot current. The river was lashed by heavy rain and the smoke screen provided proved ineffective. Only 13 boats returned for a second load, but somehow the sappers of 615 Field Squadron Royal Engineers made five crossings in all and a small bridgehead was established on the opposite bank by the American paratroops. I have never seen a more gallant operation, commented General Browning as he watched. But still no tanks or vehicles were across, and time was getting short. The road bridge was still held and might be blown at any moment. It was decided to gamble all on trying to rush some tanks across the bridge. An attempt in daylight failed, but just as it became dusk, a troop from 2nd Battalion Grenadier Guards tried again. The two leading tanks, commanded by Sergeant Pacey and Sergeant Robinson, raced onto the bridge and, with guns blazing, were lost to sight in the gloom. Every available German weapon was trained on the totally exposed stretch of road left across the bridge. There were even snipers tied onto the girders of the bridge and one of them was shot with a pistol by the wireless operator of the leading tank. Amazingly, the first two tanks got across. Broadside, they skidded through the roadblock at the other end and roared off into the darkness beyond. The next two tanks were close behind. Both were hit, but one managed to drive on regardless and all three finally joined up with some of the Americans who were crossed by the assault boats. Next across was Captain the Lord Carrington, second in command of the squadron, and he found himself mistakenly attacked in the dark by some Americans but having hurriedly identified himself, he too survived. It was now 1950 hours. Behind him in a scout car came Lieutenant Jones of 1-4 Field Squadron Royal Engineers, who coolly got out and set about disarming the huge demolition charges, amazingly still unfired. According to Cornelius Ryan in his book A Bridge Too Far, the German commander, General Heinz Harmel, gave the order to blow the charges just as the grenadier tanks were in the middle of the bridge. The engineer at his side pressed the detonating plunger twice, but nothing happened. The reason is still a mystery. 
Now, there is evidence which indicates that a Dutch resistance worker might have cut the wires. The Irish Guard's tanks now followed the Grenadiers, and a tiny precarious bridgehead was formed and held during an anxious night. So the Nijmegen Bridge was taken, and it was, to quote the official army report, a magnificent achievement brought about by the actions so brilliantly coordinated and executed of the Guards Armoured and the 82nd Airborne Division. But a vital day had been lost, and the 1st British Airborne Division at Arnhem now urgently needed support if they were to survive. The problems in the way of a further advance were, however, immense. The lines of communication were stretched to the limit and ammunition was short. Those last 11 miles across the island were along only one road, built on a high bare embankment so that the tanks were silhouetted like targets on a funfair gallery. Nor was there any chance to leave the road, for the surrounding fields were crisscrossed with deep dikes on both sides. Again, in a bridge too far, Prince Bernhardt of the Netherlands is quoted as saying, We knew tanks simply could not operate along those roads without infantry. Virtually no fire support was obtained from either the artillery or the RAF, and without it an advance on a one-tank front had little hope, for the Germans, now fully alerted to the threat, were well dug in along the only approach, with a strong screen of tanks and anti-tank guns supported by infantry. The advance was continued nevertheless next morning, with the Irish guards once more in the lead. For the next few miles all was deceptively quiet, then just short of Elst, the four leading tanks were knocked out within minutes by anti-tank guns. The road to Arnhem, now only six miles away, was completely impassable until those guns could be destroyed. Overhead, some typhoons circled, waiting for targets to be passed to them, but the one and only wireless link between them and the ground forces had suddenly gone dead. The few available infantry deployed, but in the open country, and with little fire support, they too were held up. The Welsh Guard's tanks tried another axis, but could not break through either. The Corps commander now accepted that an armoured advance was not feasible, and he ordered 43rd Infantry Division to pass through. But even their infantry could not get beyond Elst, despite a gallant parachute drop by the poles around Driel. At first light on the 22nd, two troops of the Household Cavalry managed under cover of early morning fog to infiltrate through the German lines and reach the Poles at Driel, with whom they then fought for the rest of the day. They also provided the first direct radio link between the 1st British Airborne Division and 30 Corps. An attempt by 43rd Division to follow in their tracks that day failed, and so no help had yet reached Arnhem. Now the weather was turning worse and prevented supplies and reinforcements for 1st Airborne Division being flown in. On the 22nd of September, and again on the 24th, the only axis of the Guards Armour Division was cut 20 miles back near Vegel, and the 32nd Guards Brigade had to return to clear it. 5th Guards Armour Brigade continued fighting north of Nijmegen, in an attempt to break through to Arnhem, but without success. Finally, on the night of 25th-26th September, the remnants of the British paratroops were withdrawn. It was a bitter moment for all concerned, not least for the Guards Armoured Division, who felt it deeply that they had failed to reach Arnhem. Whatever the verdicts of the historians on the ifs and buts, it was a tragic ending to the successes and high hopes of the weeks before. The German offensive in the Ardennes 
over Christmas 1944 was Hitler's last desperate gamble in the West, and when it failed, the final phase in crushing of the Third Reich gathered momentum. First, the Germans were driven back across the Rhine in the grim winter fighting in the Reichswald and around Kleve, in which both the Guards Armoured Division and 6th Guards Tank Brigade took part, the latter being the first British tanks to cross the Siegfried Line. Then, on the 23rd of March 1945, British troops crossed the Rhine in strength and Field Marshal Montgomery ordered an armoured thrust deep into Germany. Surprisingly, it was the 6th Guards Tank Brigade in their lumbering Churchill tanks, who made the most spectacular advance, achieving an impressive, unexpected and very welcome gallop from the Rhine to the Weser, a distance of 140 miles. On the 27th of March, the brigade set off, together with the 513th US Parachute Regiment. Steady but slow progress was made that day, and as darkness fell, Brigadier Greenacre made the decision to continue the advance by night with the American paratroopers riding on the tanks. It was an unprecedented technique, risky and bold, but it was to pay off handsomely with impressive distances being covered. At one stage, Lieutenant Stannard of the Kolstein Guards found a German panzer tank trying to overtake him in the dark. He waved it past and then brooded up with a neat going-away shot. On the 2nd of April, Munster was captured. The brigade group, long accustomed to waddling along at 15 miles an hour, had advanced 50 miles in six days, defeating every attempt to stop them. But they had taken 2,000 prisoners and opened the road to Hanover and Berlin. It had also been a most heartening instance of Anglo-American cooperation. The guardsmen at all levels developed a real admiration for the American paratroopers of 513th Regiment, for their courage and dash, and above all, for their tremendous enthusiasm. It was summed up in their cry, whatever the trouble. Come on, boys, let's go! Meanwhile, 4th Battalion Grenadier Guards, in partnership with the British 6th Airborne Division, were off on a similar armoured thrust that was to take them finally to the shores of the Baltic. In 12 days, they advanced no less than 240 miles, and on the 5th of April, covered the 42 miles from Osnabrück to Minden in five and a half hours, a record for Churchill tanks. On the 7th of April, they reached the outskirts of Bordenau, 10 miles northwest of Hanover, where they captured not only a vital bridge, but also an airfield complete with a Luftwaffe brothel. They were the first troops to reach the Dortmund-Ems Canal and the Weser, and they could claim at one moment to be leading the whole British army. By 22nd of April, they were on the banks of the Elbe. The Guards Army Division, by contrast, had a frustrating finale to the campaign in northwest Europe. After crossing the Rhine on the 30th of March, they set off with Bremen and Hamburg as their objectives. It proved to be grim, wearing fighting in the face of endless demolitions, snipers and the stubborn opposition at every village from fanatical paratroopers, supported by a varied assortment of last-ditch defenders of the fatherland. On the 18th of April occurred a coincidence so remarkable that it is worthy of record. Lieutenant John Swinton, in 2nd Battalion Scots Guards, lost his left leg just below the knee, a wound that was exactly similar to that suffered by his father in the First World War when serving in the same company of the same battalion and also within a fortnight of Armistice Day. 
Swinton's father arrived in England on Armistice Day 1918 and his son arrived on VE Day 1945. Both succeeded, despite their disability, in reaching the rank of brigadier. On the 27th of April, 1st Household Cavalry Regiment, having returned from Italy, joined the division as an additional reconnaissance regiment. Thus, both the 1st and 2nd regiments ended the war fighting very appropriately as part of the Guards Armoured Division. By the 5th of May, when the campaign ended, the division was on the Elbe, just west of Hamburg, having advanced 200 miles from the Rhine since the 23rd of March. Two days later, they had the satisfaction of accepting the surrender at Cuxhaven of their formidable foes from the Rhine onwards, the German 7th Parachute Division, who had asked to be allowed to surrender only to the Guards Armoured Division. 2nd Battalion Scots Guards found themselves called upon to enforce the formal surrender of Heligoland. The Hassel Cavalry obtained the surrender of the German destroyer at Cuxhaven, while the Royals occupied Copenhagen. The tanks of the Guards Armoured Division and of the 6th Guards Armoured Brigade had completed an advance of 700 miles from Bayeux to the Baltic. Their campaign had included triumphs and frustrations. It approved beyond question the versatility of the household division and confounded the cynics who said that guardsmen would be useless in tanks. It was generally accepted that it must be as infantry that the guards can contribute most in the future. So on the 9th of June 1945, on Rotenberg Airfield, the Guards Armoured Division formed up for the last time to take part in their farewell to armour parade. It was an impressive sight, with two lines of tanks at right angles to the saluting base, stretching away for half a mile to a slight ridge. They were shining with battleship grey paint, acquired from the German Navy, and in front of each tank stood its crew of four. Peace is fair commonness with a vengeance, remarked one paint-smeared guardsman. On either side of the saluting base were two infantry battalions of foot guards. In the centre, on the forward slope of the ridge, were the armoured cars of the 1st and 2nd Household Cavalry Regiment, with the self-propelled guns of the Leicestershire Yeomanry and the 21st Anti-Tank Regiment, who had supported the division so effectively. In front of them, between the two lines of tanks, were the mass bands of the Scots and Welsh Guards, flown out from England for the occasion. The salute was to be taken by Field Marshal Montgomery, and he and other VIPs arrived in a total of 36 aircraft. After a general salute, there was an inspection from two half-tracks. The bands moved to a flank, and the tank crews mounted. Start up! came the order by Brigadier Norman Gwatkin, and there was a sudden roar of 250 engines. The four columns of tanks advanced, countermarched across the parade ground, each commander traversing his gun in salute to the commander-in-chief, and then turned slowly away towards the ridge. As the last vehicle disappeared over the ridge, the bands took up Old Lang Syne. There was silence and a pause full of memory, for it was four years almost to the day since the Guards Armoured Division had been formed, and much had happened since 1941. Then over the ridge came the seven armoured battalions, now on foot and marching like the foot guards they were. When all the columns were formed up, the divisional commander gave the order not heard since 1919. Guards Division, shun! God save the King! Finally, Field Marshal Montgomery called everyone around him and spoke. 
I want to say here and now that in the sphere of armoured warfare that you have set a standard that it will be difficult for those that come after to reach. The guards have shown that whatever they are asked to do, whatever they take on, they do well. They maintain always the highest standards and give the lead to all others. Now, we need you in the infantry. We need your high standards, your great efficiency in all matters and your old traditions of duty and service. Then he paid tribute to General Anadadea that was undoubtedly echoed by all present. I do not know whether you realise how much you owe to General Anadadea. From my position as Commander-in-Chief, I do, and can tell you why. He never failed me, and he never failed you. You owe him more than you can ever repay, and I will go further. I could say that the Brigade of Guards was lucky to have ready such an officer to handle this armoured warfare for them as few could have done it so well. In front of you all, I wish to congratulate him on having brought the matter to such a successful conclusion. So there we have it, the potted history of the Guards' Armoured Division. In Wellington Barracks, on Chapel Square, stands the larger-than-life statue of Field Marshal Alexander, or Earl Alexander of Tunis, as he ended up and he's wearing the famous leather flying jacket which he wore throughout the campaign in North Africa, where the nights were so terribly cold. The jacket is actually on display in the museum, and it stands next to a photograph of Field Marshal Rommel, his adversary in the desert. The photograph was given to us by Rommel's son when he came to visit the museum. The person showing him round the museum asked him, what did your father think of Bernard Montgomery? Rommel Jr., thought for a while, and turned and said, My father thought that General Alexander was a gentleman. And they say the Germans don't have a sense of humour. To prove the Second World War was such a close-run thing, we have on display the German Victory Medal. Boxes and boxes of these medals, along with the citations all signed by Der Führer Adolf Hitler, were found in The Hague when the Allies liberated that building. The first person in was a Colonel Campbell from the Grenadier Guards, so he awarded it to himself. Typical Grenadier. One last exhibit I would mention from the museum collection came to us through the wonderful assistance of a gentleman called Adrian Beckett, a doyen of the Welsh Guards and now the Corps of Army Music. I first met him as a colour sergeant and he now rejoices in the rank of captain. When he took over as the band sergeant major of the Coldstream Guards Band, he did as all good band sergeant majors do, and he toured the length and breadth of his new command. In one storeroom, he saw a box at the back of the room and inquired what was contained therein. He was advised there was a siren in there. As many of you may know, it was the band of the Coldstream Guards that recorded the signature tune for the very famous series Dad's Army. Picture, if you will, the closing credits as they're all marching through the forest of Thetford. And in the background, you have the music playing and the credits rolling up. Towards the end, as the music finishes, a siren sets up. That is the very siren which is now on display in the museum. What people don't realise is that the Dad's Army series has been sold all around the world and dubbed into as many languages as you can think of. And the Coldstream Guards Band receives annual royalties every time that programme gets played. That money is now used for adventurous training, so Lieutenant Colonel Trevor Sharp is no doubt smiling as he looks down from the great band room in the sky, 
knowing that he did a good day's work when he recorded that music. I hope you've enjoyed hearing the part played by the guards in the Second World War. Next week we'll continue on the virtual tour of the museum galleries and we will look at the post-Second World War operations. If you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to support the work that we're doing during this enforced closure, then please go to our website at www.theguardsmuseum.com and look for the Support Us button, where you can leave a small donation which will be gratefully received and faithfully applied. I have been Andrew Wallace. This has been episode 17 of Bearskins, Bayonets and Bravery, Notes from the Guards Museum. So until next time, goodbye and God bless. Now, turn to your right and salute. Dismiss. Up. Down. And get away.